0: Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor Podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Eloise Leeson from Olim. Eloise has been on before, however, she's coming back today to talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart and your heart too, which is self-awareness or your lack thereof and mine. We're gonna be digging into smelly things like entitlement and how to identify whether or not you are self-aware. We're going to dig into subjects like friction and creating safety, bias. We're going to look at how you can solve problems using some intelligence and how you can create interesting content that people actually want to engage with by paying attention
1: to your customer. So, Eloise, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. It's lovely to be back and I can't wait to to rant productively about so many of these different things with you.
0: Excellent. Would you mind giving everyone 60 seconds on your background and what Olim does,
1: please? Uh, I would love to. So my work with Olim is as a strategic linguistic consultant which in non-fancy terms, means that I help a number of different organizations from biosciences firms, cybersecurity companies, management consultancies and more, to communicate in a way that is more engaging for their audience, more accessible and more human. In a nutshell, I like to say that I help you bridge the gap between what it is that you think you're saying and what is actually being received by your customers.
0: Right, but surely these people are incredibly intelligent and they know their customer.
1: I think the incredibly intelligent part is absolutely true for all of it. And obviously the knowing your customer is something that I think we all think we know. I think a little knowledge can be a very dangerous thing. And I think often it takes a cataclysmic event, like a global pandemic, for example, for marketers in any industry to stop and think, oh, maybe things are maybe things are different now. So yes, I think shorter the, but the truth is actually that, that everyone is changing all the time. You know, if you think back to your own personal experience, Experiences as a listener in the last 12 to 18 months, and how radically your life might have changed. You might have had a job shift, you might have moved house, you might have had a new family. You might be—you know—we're all facing down a cost of living crisis and a recession. Those are five big changes I can tick off on one hand that I just literally thought of off the top of my head. So, how is it that marketers can assume that other people's lives haven't changed and that their customers' needs haven't changed on the back of it? And this is where sales and marketing need to play nicely together, which we've definitely ranted about before. So what baffles
0: me is how little time marketers and very often even SDRs spend actually talking to customers. Um, So the people at the front end of uh, pipeline generation really need to be much, much better uh, informed and understand their customer. But let's deal with the great big elephant poo in the room, which is the self-awareness question.
1: Yes, the self-awareness question is, it's a tricky one, but it's one I see coming up time and time again. I have a very dear friend who is a solutions focused therapist, the only therapist who doesn't want to hear about your problems. Um, so obviously, I love her. And what she spoke about, we spoke about a lot recently, is the issues that we have or we are seeing at the moment with entitlement. So, the parents, for example, who feel entitled to have their children rush in on them during a business call, whilst they have someone else who maybe doesn't have children on the other end of the phone or who's allocated a certain slot of time to be present with someone else. That kind of entitlement of my time is worth more because I have kids. How does that start to affect your self-awareness, for example? But then also you look at that from a business perspective. So that's just kind of illustrating the issue of entitlement. But you look at that from a business perspective, which is, well, this person is more senior than, than you who I'm having a meeting with. So yes, it's fine for them to interrupt this meeting with me. Or I've been in this game for so long that I know exactly what customers want and you can't change my mind. So don't even bother trying to do any market research. The issue with self-awareness is it's it starts with the word self, fundamentally. But self-awareness starts, I think, personally, focus group of one, but it starts when you start thinking about other people. And that is one of the things that I see is so greatly lacking, not just, you know, in terms of our working world, but socially as well.
0: This is one of the wonderful things about life as one gets older, that you start to realise that uh, there are so many paradoxes. If you want to get trust, you have to give it first. If you want to respect, to get respect, you have to earn it first. You can't demand it. Um, If you want people to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first. And if you want people to innovate, you have to uh, often constrain them. That's the wonderful irony. And I I, I remember doing a a comedy course and um, uh, I wasn't picked in the final cut, which I was slightly gutted about for the show. And I came home and I told the family and I was moping around on Saturday morning, feeling a little sorry for myself. And my daughter came down she was about 12 at the time. And she said, Daddy, people ask me, do you want to be like your dad? And I looked at her and I say, no. All right. why is that? Because I'm funny. Exactly. So, and um, clearly, the comedy gene skipped a generation of miserable shit. <laughs> it's so funny. She's always made me laugh. Every time I I fall into a sense of entitlement or of self-importance, um, she brings me back down to where... Oh, family's there,
1: yeah. I love that. <laughs>
0: oh, this is one of three. Oh, excellent. Uh, plus the female cat, the female dog, and, of course, uh, the head of the family, my wife. Of course, senior
1: management. I believe. I believe
0: is the title. Well, that I, I know my place. I, we, we've got a photograph of me uh, lying down, holding up a twenty-pound note, and there's this pyramid of children, and then a wife on top. <laughs> Husband's no your place.
1: I love that. Excellent stuff.
0: But if, yes. So you were saying? Anyway, there's issue around entitlement, and what it seems to be, there's a, a distinct lack of self-awareness, and part of it, I think is driven by where people come from in terms of their perspective, their conditioning, their biases, their filters on the world. Uh, I'm really interested how, as a linguistic consultant, the internal conversation, the internal language, is then reflected in the experience that customers uh, get. Because uh, the, the example I would use from my world is the use of Bant as a qualification process so for those of you who are not familiar budget authority need and time now yes it's a fabulous platform for explaining where you are in terms of progress within a deal internally but asking a customer bant questions makes you sound like an ass
1: so over to you (laughs) so i think but first of all, I love that. And um, internal to me operates on two levels. Okay, so you have the singular internal, which is you know your little world inside here, and and, and what's going on in your brain at any one time. And then so in the company, internal, your internal dialogue, indeed, dialogue your, or monologue. Your monologue, your narrative, the subconscious thoughts, the you know the the sort of little the little chat that goes on in your head at all times. That's what I would kind of refer to as, as kind of the, the internal on a singular level. Now, you, you get a group of these individuals with their monologues and all the rest of it going on in their brains, where you can't necessarily always share it particularly eloquently or effectively with another person, and that creates a collective internal that's where we need something like Bant, because we need a common language to be able to say, here's how we all know we're talking about the same thing. So, your internal jargon, your internal policies, all of those things, fine, absolutely fine. And, and in linguistics, this is what you could broadly describe as a sociolect, which I've probably spoken with you about before, Marcus. But you create a language internally in business that People belong to, right? So sociolect. If you think about a dialect as being a geographical mini variation, it's not it's a mini variation.
0: It's thieves' cant. It's um, pig Latin.
1: Yes and no. So, but it's so. So the dialect itself is about a geographical variation of, of one larger language. So Doric in Aberdeen is a is a dialect of Scots. When it comes to the social aspect of your language, it's actually the version that marks you out socially. So a lot of people will apply a sociolect to your class, for example, or a socioeconomic status. But broadly speaking, speaking a certain sociolect is a, a sort of a, a, a hallmark of belonging. So when you all speak about bant under one deal, you are creating inadvertently a sociolect. Humans want to belong. It's just, it's, 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 we're hardwired that way. So when it comes to them trying to invite a customer in and trying to put the customer on the same side of the table as you, you have to create some kind of consciousness around ditching that internal language and that internal collective language, that sociolect, to say, we are are here to help you too. And that's where the biosafety piece comes in. Because otherwise, just through the very words that you're using, you're creating a massive chasm. It would be like trying to explain an in-joke to someone and then being cross with them when they don't find it funny.
0: Understood, so again, it's like um, politicians saying that they're in touch with their electorate. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: Okay, again, I I think let's spend a little bit of time talking about that internal dialogue as well, Um, because when you're communicating, you've got to be aware of um, how you are showing up. And if you have an internal dialogue and you're projecting out that you're nervous or you don't even like yourself or that you're uncomfortable or something like that that's reflected that's reflected back in terms of how other people respond to you whether they're buyers bosses or subordinates
1: absolutely so <sighs> That's a real can kind of worms, but it, it's true. You know, your internal language, it has to start with you. And if you want to see an outward change, it has to start inside. Ironically, I think we are more allegedly aware of things, you know, in our modern generation. I think we are encouraged to do the reflection, do the deep work, do the journaling, do the therapy, be your best self, all of that. And yet it stops with just kind of you know, thinking about it or, or going through the motions and doing it. We stop thinking about that as the first step in a process whereby you need to, to maybe, because also I don't know about anyone else, but my brain can be a swamp sometimes. So getting your internal monologue right sometimes looks like having a conversation with someone that you trust. It looks like something like radical candor in action. You know, Marcus, now you and I've spoken about radical candor for anyone who hasn't seen Kim Scott's excellent talk about radical candor where she introduces the quadrants of caring personally and challenging directly. I would thoroughly recommend you go and look at that as a start of 10, but also getting, getting out of your, um, your own echo chamber. And this is one of the biggest issues that I see But well, what well, social media has perpetuated this to start it's very easy to find algorithms that give you more of what you like. But the, the issue is that when that starts to spill out into business, because what you then create is a culture where people are afraid of challenging either things that they see that are going wrong in business, or they're not challenged enough themselves on the fact that they are they are only being critical internally and are only kind of positively praising everybody else around them. You create a really vicious cycle victim mentality in that sense. So sometimes asking a trusted colleague for some really candid feedback. You know, someone that you know cares about you and has your best interests at heart, and getting a reality check on the stories that you're telling yourself because they could be incredibly damaging to you and your customers in the long run,
0: okay, interesting. Let's move into the way one speaks to oneself. Mm. Uh, often, i I've heard you uh, and many others uh, talk about uh, the importance of using the pronoun you. And I'm very curious about when, it's more appropriate to use I in copy because if you want to get someone to get into a moment, if you use the pronoun you, or you, uh, you know, one one thing's I teach people if they want to get out of their own way and tame their gremlins is to take a step back and start talking to themselves with the pronoun you, and it's you know, Eloise, you know, you can do better than this. You know, you're better than this, and so you become a third party in that dialogue, and you step back, and so it gives you some distance. But I, I'm really curious about the flip side of that. When is it better to use
1: I? That's a very, very good question. When is it better to use I? When you're owning something. So my my first instinct when it says, when someone says, when should you use the word I? When you're telling someone if you're apologizing um, and when you are taking ownership of a particular task, when you are showing up for other people, ideally, and when you want to be held to account, and I think when you recognize yourself as an active agent in your business and in your life, and when you realize actually that you have a huge amount of power to affect change for yourself, you know, whether or not the, you're listening to this podcast and you're someone who's just curious, or you're, you're actually working there and you're looking for a sales promotion, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that you can wish that change and circumstance were different as much as you like, but you are the person that can make things happen. It's very, very easy to pretend that we're a victim of things. And one of the most dangerous things about that is that when you say you, you, you all the time, it takes the problem outside yourself. That's great when you are trying to tame remnants. When it comes down to saying, well, what action can I take? What change can I affect? What can I, me in this moment, this like little tiny what rabbit hands, don't know what I'm doing. I really hope this is not a video version of this podcast, Marcus. I, I, but,
0: I've never done clips before, but for that, I will. No.
1: <laughs> But so but in terms of the what what action can I specifically take to improve things and then have some fun with it? You don't have to have a perfect solution. I think this is the other thing that we think is that we have to be perfect all the time. We really don't. I'm speaking as a you know very badly recovering perfectionist. But when you put the word I against an action, it reminds you that you have power and agency and there are things you can do. And it can be as little as saying, I can ask someone else for a, a hand with this or I can ask for a feedback on this call.
0: Right, so for a headline in the inverted commas, something like that, or where you're quoting somebody and uh, you want to convey that emotion. And
1: and, And when you're, so when you're writing with it, with the focus of that being on a client. Yeah. Uh, So ironically, I would actually still use I internally. I is when you want to figure out what your client needs and what you can do to get them there. When, when you're writing in an email, and I've maybe spoken with you about this before, Marcus, is uh, I try and avoid I as much as possible because there's no quicker way to alienate a customer let's just talk about yourself one of my favorite metaphors for this is the dating metaphor so you've you know you've, you've met some tall dark a dark haired stranger in a in a bar and you, you've gone for dinner and it's all gone really well but then all of a sudden they start talking about themselves and I did this and I did that and I did this and they haven't asked you once about yourself and you get halfway through your steak main and you're ready to stab them with the knife you know, and then by the time desserts come around, you 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 know you're ready to get your coat and shoes and, and your shoes.
0: I'm pretty sure the last time you used exactly the same metaphor. Did I? I really
1: yeah, like to stay I'm dinner. I'm pretty
0: sure you also said stab them with a knife. Well, well you is, know, uh, is, are we getting uh, a little glimpse into your history?
1: You, I couldn't comment either way. I <laughs> uh, couldn't comment either way. So when it comes to writing, I, I mean, I think it depends on on you have to understand when you're writing the word I, what is the I that I am representing? Is it myself in terms of I am going to do X, Y, and Z for you to move this along in which case very helpful name the agent when it comes to pitches and proposals it might be that the I becomes your company in which case watch out for something that my friend Zineb calls don't wee wee on your copy
0: <laughs> so, I think that might be the um is that uh, the catch
1: is that the title I,
0: I, I think that might just be the uh, the headline um, don't wee on your copy but
1: it's it's don't but don't really avoid that so much. There's nothing as alienating in a pitch deck as a third party saying we do this and we do this and we do this. Like, well, that's OK, great. And the amount of of customers and clients that I work with that are like, oh, well, we've we've got this thing and, and this is this is our like we thought we did a really good version of it. And it starts and all you can see is their name or their logo throughout the entire thing and it's very apparent that they haven't thought about their customer at all the the equivalent of using i in an email for an individual is the same thing as using we in the copy and there's a cracking i've forgotten his second name now there's a cracking copywriter called nick who i recently connected with on linkedin and he says until you've explained the benefits to your customer you haven't earned the right to use the word we in your copy full stop And until you've explained how your customers' needs specifically are things you can meet and help them solve or the problems that they have, the the jobs to be done that that, that you help them get done, you've not earned the right to talk about yourself. You can show them how you help them, but you don't get to say, you know, we are a fantastic customer. We are are a fantastic business, does X, Y, and Z in this realm.
0: Very good. Very interesting. So next question then. Bob Mester says something which I heard on a podcast a couple of days ago, which I think is genius, which is the consumer is the innovator. And his approach is to try and understand what drives the customer's demand and to get their story. And I really want to spend a good um, length of time on developing the customer's story Um, because one of the most common blind spots is assuming you know what the hell your customer needs and wants. And more often than not, your customer doesn't know what they want, whatever they bring you. It's typically either nirvana, i.e. what they really would love to have, but no idea how to get, or the symptoms that they've created through their own acts of self-sabotage. What they don't ever tell you really is what the cause of their problem is. They very rarely tell you or are clear about why they really want that outcome. So I would really like to understand from you how you elicit a customer's
1: story. Two things on this one. One is that the traditional methods of gathering customer research are not always the most effective. So one of the problems that we have is that a focus group Mm -hmm. is a fundamentally artificial environment and it will produce very artificial answers. You know, and I understand that things like quality control is very necessary. You need to do a a controlled study for science and all the rest. I'm like, cool. Okay, yes, yes, I I see that. That's not helpful when it comes to understanding people's needs. That's helpful when you want feedback on a particular product. Okay. But taking the focus group approach and applying it to customer audience research is not a great way to do it. The simple answer to how can we create and elicit true responses from customers and not just the responses they want to give you it's not an easy job, it's not an easy job to do at all. So one of the, the things that, that people need to realize about doing this kind of research, if you're going to do this kind of research, and you should, is that it will be time consuming and it will not be easy. And the answers may not become immediately apparent to you. Now, those things might happen and that would be fantastic, but you have to realize that you're in you're in this for the long haul. Your customer and audience research should be an ongoing process where you meet about this maybe once a week, maybe twice, as, sorry, once a month, twice a month, and you share findings. You have your ear and your brain attuned to changes in need because responses, true responses to the question, what is it you need, can only come when someone trusts you with the answer, doesn't feel ashamed for asking for them, and knows in some way that by telling you and being that that excruciatingly vulnerable about sharing that need, That you can help them get some way towards having it met. And that is not something that you can produce from a focus group. It's not something you can produce from survey. It's not something you can produce necessarily, although I do advocate for this, is sitting in on sales calls. Sitting in on sales calls is a fantastic research tool when you want to hear the words that your customers are using on a regular basis. Social listening on social media, very similar principle, but that is a different beast to help me understand how we can serve you better.
0: And there's another massively untapped resource which most sales organizations completely ignore, which is the customer success um, uh, conversations. CS is speaking to the customer on a daily basis. Salespeople are speaking to customers if they're lucky as an SDR for around three minutes a day and 12 to 21% for an AE of their working day is spent in front of the customer or speaking to the customer. The rest is spent on technical shit, meetings, admin, and uh, work avoidance. So the reality is that you've got a fantastic opportunity. And Jeff Bezos said this. And if anyone understands data, I would suggest Bezos would be somewhere right at the top of that tree. And this is a quote from him, which is, if the anecdote and the data disagree, believe the anecdote. You have to listen to the small data. Martin Lindstrom wrote a brilliant book called Small Data. He spent the last... 40 years of his life flying around the world, living in people's houses, observing how they actually use products, speaking to them. And he spends 170 days a year, pre-pandemic, in other people's homes, seeing how they work, how they interact with Puma or Adidas or Lego or whatever. Um, And he has such an amazing insight into those little nuances. And learning how to do jobs to be done interviews is something that every salesperson and every marketer should get involved in because opening someone up from the moment where they made the purchase decision and working backwards is incredibly instructive. I found it remarkably
1: powerful. It really is. It really is. And I think that when you work backwards, you cancel out that second guessing piece because what you're doing is it, it's so when I was a child, my dad showed me a labyrinth hack and the labyrinth hack is that if you want to know which bit of the the labyrinth to enter when you have say on the back of a cereal packet right you would have a, a labyrinth golden center whatever i hope you're not mine at all but you have four different entry points and if you wanted to know which one do you go in that doesn't lead you to a dead end you said start in the middle yeah. and work well, your well, way well. backwards and eliminate the guessing you because also companies you don't have time or resource for anything else well, the interesting thing
0: is often 10 interviews is enough to get a real sense, but you've got to interview the right people. The right people are people who've recently switched from a com- competitor or from whatever the status quo item was to your product, or someone who is using your product or solution in an unusual way. It's a workaround, or people who fired you and find out why they fired you. Find out how your users are working around your product to try and understand what problems that they need to get met that you're failing to serve. Because there's all that unmet need, that unidentified demand, and any one of these could be a catalyst for opening up an entirely new market.
1: Exactly. And I think if you don't do that research, you're just going to keep making slightly different versions of the same thing.
0: You see this in recruitment. Yeah, People fire someone and then use the same job description that they use to recruit the person they just fired to hire the next one. And then they wonder why they don't work out. I mean, that's oversimplifying the problem
1: because there are many others associated with it, but it's symptomatic. But that brings us back to the issue of self-awareness. You know, if you were more aware, I mean, we could probably just drop the self bit, if you were more aware of what's happening internally and externally, what's happening with people around you, you might stop and think, oh, I'm doing the same thing that I did, I'm gonna get the same result. And yet we don't. We get caught in these silos, these self-perpetuated silos of, oh, well, that it was clearly the other person's fault. Or, well, they just weren't quite the right type of, of this. I mean, I, I see this, you know, socially speaking, I see this in relationships. I see friends of mine who, who get themselves into difficult relationships and then wonder why all men are terrible. And I sit there and go, there's a common denominator here. You. And it, it's not a popular response because it doesn't, it doesn't make it doesn't mark you out as the hero of the story. It means that actually you might have some agency and you might have some energy and you might have some ability to get off your bottom and go out and do something that's just a little bit different. And we don't like to think that because that's uncomfortable and it's strange and it's new, but that is also where the magic of change happens. And and I, I hate the quote that life begins at the end of your comfort zone. Because I will tell you that if I sit under the GV of my bed and I watch reruns on Netflix, that is definitely me living one of my best lives. And it is a comfort zone. But it's that sense of nothing changes if nothing changes, right? Well, so you, yeah.
0: I, I have this issue with people being constantly out of their comfort zone because experience has taught me that the things that I'm best at are the things that I learn the most about. And I can keep building on that. But every time I've tried to work on a genuine weakness... I seem to weaken my strength to the same level that I don't improve my, uh, my weakness. And it seems to be mostly counterproductive. So why not just find people who are better at that shit than you are and have them
1: do it? Which is brilliant. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what we should be doing. The other thing I think with self-awareness as well is that when you aren't, and we are putting the self back in self-awareness, is that there needs to be a point where we also recognize that other people are better at things than we are mm. often. And we don't do that a lot, or I don't see that a lot. I mean, maybe I'm speaking from a very arrogant personal lens, but one of the, the things that I also was speaking with a friend about this week was that the I think other people also feel entitled to our expertise in certain circumstances. So you have to know the boundary between recognizing someone else and the hard work and the dedication, the talent they've put in. And knowing when you need to change up your ideas about how good you think you are and what needs to be done to bridge those gaps is generally just to work together. So that's why that, that peer feedback is so important, you know, in, in terms of that. I've got this really, you know, I'm struggling with this issue. Can you help me? And we seem very loath to ask for help. I don't know why we we see it as a sign of weakness.
0: Because we've grown up. Yeah, you know, boys don't cry. Don't, you know. you Just do it yourself, man up and all of that sort of shit. But the reality is what put us to the top of the food chain was our ability to cooperate and our ability to look at a problem together and solve it together and work together. If we don't do that in tough times, this is my fifth recession. I've never been more confident in my business career than this moment, because this represents a fantastic opportunity. Most of my competition are now worrying that there's going to be downward pressure on fees, that if there isn't downward pressure, there's just going to be a cut. And the last time this happened in 2008 to 10, the training industry died on its ass. I've never had such a full pipeline, and I've never had to work so little to build it. Because most of the work that I've done in the last three, four years in particular, has been building this ecosystem of trusted partners. And they and my clients just bring people to me. And as long as I don't screw it up, because my job is to protect their relationship with the person they've referred me now. (laughs) It's a very different
1: mindset. It is. The mindset is collaborative. And I think that one of the reasons that if we come back to that audience research piece, that first massive blind spot, is that the, the research piece, we're scared is going to leave us more destitute somehow. We're going to find things out about ourselves or our business that we don't want to know. And it's the, the comfort piece of, well, I don't want to know that I have to change because the change is going to be scary and the change is going to be hard. Or I don't want to alter the offering or how I'm doing business to serve my customers better because this is the way we've always done it. You know, I hear that one a lot, and I think I, I would I would suggest that often uh, people don't fear
0: change; they fear uncertainty. And when there is lack of clarity from leadership, and this is where comms really come into their own, where there is lack of clarity, either in terms of the uh, the job to be done that everyone is meant to be working towards, you know, the the common mission, common purpose, and the shared values, and you start to see things fall apart where. People buy into the ethos and then the leadership fail to live up to expectations, or they tolerate people behaving out of integrity within the value system. And it's interesting when we were in the green room, you were talking about culture and a cult being the root word of culture. And in cults, we elevate and put on a pedestal um, the people who represent the qualities that we love and espouse, and we denigrate and reject. Um, them, the people from outside of our tribe. And I'm really interested in understanding how you're creating common ground through your communication, because then you can start to build bridges. And I think that's how we build resilience and how we get through this fifth recession in my lifetime.
1: So I can't talk about you, unfortunately, Um, but I I can absolutely speak to the the nature of creating common ground in in any in any organization i think first of all you have to recognize the need for it i think for as long as there are people out there who are convinced that they can get everything done from their personal political position all by themselves or at everyone else's expense because their way is the right way and everyone else is just stupid that's a recipe for disaster i think there has to be a recognition that you need common ground and leadership particularly that has to come from the top down because otherwise, you know, a, a junior management team coming together to to create their common ground and the leadership mixing it in the bud, you know, or nipping it in the bud, I should say, will just become deeply, deeply demoralizing and demotivating. So I think, first of all, you have to create the, you have to realize there is a need for common ground. And second of all, you've got looking for it. You know, what are the things that we share? What are the common goals? A really good way to do this is to think about what's the benefit? What would we love to deliver for our customer? Ideally, everyone is in that job because they want to help the organization to to, kind of either um, support their customers better or serve the people that you've come together around, what community are you pouring into? By thinking about the benefits you could bring a customer, you start to very subtly create common ground that doesn't have to do with the fact that you might hate some of the people that are in your room. I'm not saying there aren't tensions within management structures or in inside teams in big businesses. Of course there are. There are going to be differences. People are going to rub each other up the wrong way. But as long as you are all aligned and anchored around how do we want to serve our end customer and what do we want to do for them? How do we want them to feel? What benefit should they have? What should be easier at the end of their days because of us? That's a much better kind of common ground to create them. Oh, we like each other. And th- can we just have a minute? Liking each other is not the same thing as having common ground. That's fair. And I think too many people think that oh, we'll do a team away day. We'll make everyone do volleyball in air jumpsuits and that'll make everyone like each other more. And there will be better as a company. No. Get people focused in around what it is they want to achieve as a common goal. You will find much, much more common ground supporting a common goal than you will just trying to be nice to each other.
0: So this then points to something else. A lot of my clients are executive level and they're having to manage up. Um, And so taking a lot of what you've taken or said there in terms of managing up, find what it is. That your senior leadership are trying to accomplish. And this is, again, why I would urge anyone who's got difficult senior management and maybe investors playing the Ponzi game of triple, triple, double, 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 and they're driving your business very hard because they need, they need to see growth in order to keep the um, the fees coming and the carry big. So one of your challenges is that you're going to have senior management putting you under pressure And trying to get you to do more of what used to work when you were trying to scale and you had lots of money and it was cheap and you could take three years to make a a profit on a customer. You no longer have that luxury and wasting 40% of your funding on paying Google AdWords, Amazon and Facebook does seem to be slightly inane because it just means that you've got to go out and find more money to keep fueling the beast. So if you're trying to manage up in this kind of market where you're getting a lot of pressure to do stupid short term things, what advice would you give to those executives who are being squeezed by both ends uh, in terms of how they can really communicate effectively and protect their staff so
1: they can get the job done? That's a really big question. How can you protect? So how can you communicate to protect your staff? and to manage up effectively. You need to understand the drivers for your senior team. So obviously the ones that you've just illustrated to me, you also need to understand what is the trickle down and the knock on impact on the people below you. You then I would suggest go looking for some data and some metrics. So how do you want to achieve? How are you going to achieve those goals? What's worked? What's what's worked well? What do you need to get rid of? And then you also need to explain to your uh, your junior team, those below you, of what you're doing that may not yet manifest itself in immediate results for them. so it's it's one of those things that like we are currently, we're all riding through a change together. we're all we're all growing together, growing pains are going to happen. The senior team depends on how receptive they are to your feedback, but helping them to understand, the pressures that you're under at the moment, and what you are doing to help them meet their goals. I think you have to come as with a solution for both parties. You have to be able to present a problem and a suggestion of solutions. And this is what good leaders should do. They should teach people beneath them to come up with solutions to the problem they have. And then if you need to sign off on a decision, you can do that, but you need to have some decisions to sign off on. You have some solutions to decide about. Wes Cow, who I've spoken about before, who I think is called, now. I think she's called the Marketing Maven. I can't remember. I will, I will send it to you, Mark, for the show notes. But Wes Cow has a fantastic Twitter thread about how to create a team culture of coming up with tested, intelligent ideas and then tested, intelligent solutions. Because what you don't want is to go to your senior team saying, here are all these problems. I don't know what to do. That's the last thing your senior team needs. They're aware of the issues. What they need to know is, okay, so you've come up with a number of different solutions to these problems. I would like your recommendation, but then it'll be my job as your leader to tell you this is what we're going to do and why, because they might have access to information that you don't. Conversely, you are also in that position for your junior team. So you should be encouraging your junior team to come up with solutions for some of the issues that, that are happening right now that you can then sign off on. But by empowering them, it's that disciplined initiative. Here are the guardrails I want you to work within, but I want you to surprise you with your creativity in the way that you've come up with a solution at the end. Because it will be one of those things where there might not be a perfect solution to the problem, but at least if you've shown initiative in thinking about it, we are further forward than we were before you came up with the issue at hand.
0: Love everything that you said there. Um, the whole concept of um, management being a bottleneck and creating these points of friction where they um, end up blocking innovation, where they delay things and they start to feel the pressure. I'm working with one fabulous manager. He's recently been promoted from being an individual contributor. And it's his first time. He's so eager to learn, but he's getting such bad direction from senior leadership, and they're pillaging future revenue in order to make a short-term objective. And this is in a high-tech space where of manufacturing, where they're committing to years, many years of fixed pricing. Now, you can't possibly do that in a good conscience without putting the business at risk. Or you know, risking upsetting the customer later when you then have to renege on a deal. Because I think one of the big challenges is how often managers are being forced to behave outside of their boundaries of integrity. And they know it's not going to work.
1: But you know why that is, is because most managers are accidental.
0: There are 2.4 million accidental managers in the United Kingdom, on average, they have seven to eight direct reports. You do the maths. So that's at least half of the UK population is working for someone who woke up one morning, came to work, scoffed their cereal, got tapped on the shoulder and told, Eloise, good news. We fired your boss. You're now the idiot boss. Congratulations. Off you go. Great that's kick everything. for me. <laughs> but in- that's,
1: that's part of the issue, isn't its it? Is it you know, I, I, think, I don't think anybody wants to be a bad manager. You know, yeah. I really don't, I really don't believe, I think I think fundamentally, and this is going to sound a bit sort of, you know, happy clappy, but I, I do genuinely believe everybody wants to do the best job they can. And if they don't, I'm sure the villains league is hiring. And no one wants to be a bad manager. Everybody's had an experience of a bad manager. No one wants to be that deliberately, but we fall into these traps. And I think this is one of the, the biggest issues, actually, the biggest killers of, of positive internal communications and creating common ground is that we have people who, whose intentions are good, but they're scared of asking for help, or they're scared of saying, and this is my favorite words, I don't know you behoove no one by saying or pretending that you know everything. You know, it's one of the things is if I don't know what the solution is for my client, I will say, I'm, like, I'm sorry, I don't know. I recommend you speak to X, Y, and Z who is a specialist in these areas. So for example, I don't do SEO. SEO, I understand very basically, but it is a dark art as far as I am concerned. And I am more than happy to say, look, I am not an SEO specialist. I do not know the best practices, but I can put you in touch with people who do. And we can align on that. And we work on that, but also SEO. I mean, SEO is definitely a specialism and an expertise all of its own. And there's absolutely been a social media manager out there at some point who has said, "You know, well, the algorithms changed. I just don't know what's going on." Managers who can say, "I don't know how to manage," is the is the first step of that self awareness piece because you're thinking about the impact of your your. I don't want to say lack of intelligence because that's not the case. Of your lack of training and knowledge, your lack of knowledge. If you don't know, it's ignorance, and there's no
0: shame in it. There's no until, shame in that. Yeah, uh, until you do know it, and then you don't apply it, because that's willful ignorance.
1: Maya Angelou said, I think it was something along the lines of, do the best that you can with what you have, and when you know better, do better. And I think it's that last clause that's missing from so much of our management at the moment, is that managers, if they do know better and they don't want to, why? Is it because the the better baby is not being appropriately rewarded? Is it because the better behaviours are taking too long to enact? Is it because they don't know, they haven't actually consciously understood what those behaviours are? I also think that's, that there's a massive opportunity in so many businesses, and bear with me, I can hear the eye rolls beginning already, but for reflection, as in as in take the time to well, write down.
0: Roll eyes? The, I, I can't stress enough how important reflection is. If you don't self-reflect, then frankly, you're wasting a
1: huge amount of effort. Reworking the same mistakes. Reworking the same mistake. There you go. That's exactly it. So, and it is. I think the other thing is that reflection doesn't have to be a a half an hour journal at the end of every day. Because let's face it, like not not many folk have time for that. But if you can, the next time something went good, the the invitation that I would extend would be write down what it was and why it went well. And that way, you start to create like a a little book potentially, or a word document, or a swipe file, or any of these things, where you are writing down the good things that you have done well. I mean, a really nice way to start that is, and I I rubbish at doing this myself, but I'm committing to doing it, is a smile file. If you're not sure where you're going right with certain things, look at positive feedback from appraisals, look at positive feedback from colleagues. Again, Radical Candor have a fantastic invitation to feedback, which is having a go-to question Embracing the discomfort, because everybody hates feedback. I don't care what you say. Everyone hates the experience of it. Listen to understand. That's also vital. And then reward the candor. But then do something with that feedback, whether it's just to write it down and keep a record of it. It's still more than thinking you're going to remember it, because I promise you, you won't. Make a note of it somewhere. Write it down. Yeah. I mean, writing, it's
0: also, if you can't or don't like writing stuff down for a journal, then uh, my workaround has always been content production. Virtually every lesson that I've ever learned has come from um, basically screwing up, then putting it into content. So I you know, I either re- reinforce the lesson uh, or I get more coverage uh, because other people who screw up like I do uh, are then attracted. My, my entire sales training business started insight that if I found people who were broken like me and I got paid to fix us both, it was a win. I went out and I deliberately found people who, and I just told people what my problems were. And I said, typically client, you know, my clients have, and they said, yeah, that's me. And then they volunteered and we work it out together.
1: But that reflection piece then, as you say to the customer, Marcus, it also, when it, and this is one of my biggest bugbears about self-awareness and reflection and journaling and being interested in yourself, working on yourself, becoming, you know, all of this, you know, best version of you living your best life. Don't let it stop there. For the love of all that's holy please don't let it stop there take everything that you've learned about being a good person and now think about how you can you can use you the good person to help other people and this is when work-based reflection is great if you're in work and you're reflecting about you being better fantastic now do it for your clients
0: let me recommend a book by my friend Antonio Garrido called my daily leadership and he asked himself two questions in this journaling process Did you do your best work today? And have you earned your money today? Now, those two questions are really very, very telling. Because if you've earned your money, that's fine. But have you done your best work? I bet there's always better. So then it forces you to think, well, what could I have done better? Einstein said it. The eighth wonder of the world is compound interest. Those people who understand it earn it. Those who don't pay it. Now, if you compound half a percent improvement per day, It's 273% by the end of a working year. Now, that's on top of your original investment. So you're three times better than you were at the beginning of the year by just doing a tiny incremental improvement every day. Now, you compound that across the entire organization, and now the organization is moving forward 273%. If you do 1% a day, that's a 1,400% improvement. You will break under the pressure of a 1% compound improvement every day from everyone. Doesn't that make you excited? Of course it does.
1: That makes I mean, me excited. I hope anyone else listening ever. to this is excited. You know, think never about been. it. Just, just visualize. What does the end of that year look like when you're looking back at an organization that has not only, you know, broadly speaking, improved your percent but every individual in that company? Year three, oh. 27 times better. Oh, it just, it's so exciting. I think that the reflection piece is about, and this is beautiful, it Towards the end of the year and what your plans might be for 2023. So have a think about it. You know, what's what's one tiny thing you can change? I can't remember if it was Bradley Wiggins who, or, or was it the, the, the English team who went for the Tour de France and they, they said, we're going to get 100% better by 1%, we're going to get 1% better at 100 things. Yeah. You know, Even if all you do is sit down and write, what are, what are even 10 things that I could get better at? 1% better at each of those things is still a 10% improvement. And as we've just said, 1% improvement over time, 230% at the end of the year.
0: A really simple exercise is just write down three lessons a day and make sure you teach them to someone else within 24 hours and document them. If you put them into a central repository, Then it can be a great tool for managers and for uh, people in your team, because I like to employ the rule of three before me. If anyone wants my help, they can ask me for anything, unlimited times, as long as they've tried three things to fix it themselves beforehand. So you create this repository, and now you start to create peer-to-peer learning. Because what I want to do when I'm working with companies, I want to create an environment where you become a destination employer. I want people to be queuing up and banging on our door, wanting to work here, because it's interesting and meaningful work. And they're working with interesting and very capable people who stretch them and hold them to account and make them better. And the it's the intersectional moments where they work with other people that the best ideas, I mean, I, the last couple of years has been the most creative that I've ever been because of the level of collaboration and cooperation I've had with 400, maybe 500 other people. It's insane.
1: I love that. I love that. So good.
0: Eloise, we've come to the top of the hour, rather unsurprisingly. Tell me this, looking ahead, how can one quell the panic in the communication that companies are issuing, especially when they've got bad news? How, How can they... Convey the message so it conveys confidence and uh, a sense of control, as opposed to "oh shit, um, we've just blown forty-four billion because we don't quite know what we're doing."
1: Oh, first of all, I would make sure that you have a very large glass of wine ready after you've done. If that's if you know if anyone drinks, but have some kind of reward for after you've done this. What I would do actually is it goes straight back to that managing up piece, and when you're communicating some kind of failure to your customers. I would love, I would really love for you to think about the solutions that you're going to be trying at the same time. No one wants to be told they've got a problem. They want to be told there's a problem. And here are some solutions that we've identified. So a really good example of this is Octopus Energy. So Octopus Energy are actually very, very good at communicating. Yeah, there's a cost of living crisis coming in. Gas prices are going to be wild. Here's why. And here's what we're gonna to do to try and support you. So they, I mean, to be honest, for my tastes, it was far too long. It was a really wordy letter, but I appreciate that for a lot of people out there, they needed that level of reassurance. You yeah. need to make sure that your work is fulfilling the appropriate maxims, how much information is needed. Is the information relevant to the cause? This is not the time for you to start telling people that you're an award-winning company. They don't care if they're gonna be cold in winter and they're worried about granny. No, they don't wanna know that you're an award-winning company. Focus your, if the problem is going to affect everybody, focus on the solutions you're creating for your customers, not on what you're doing for your staff. That's for your internal communications. Barclays Bank emailing me saying, we've put up screens in front of our bankers so that they're going to be safe for COVID. I'm like, and what you should have said is we're still trying to keep our branches open because we appreciate some people prefer a face-to-face contact in these difficult times rather than saying, here's how we're protecting our staff. I just couldn't care. I might Being in my email inbox is a privilege, frankly, um, because I am handy with the unsubscribe button. So when you're coming out in terms of making an announcement of any kind, it isn't just email, but of any kind, whether it's internal, whether it's external, think about the other person. That is the beginning and the end of success with all of your comms, because otherwise you're monologuing. And the only people that monologue, as far as I can tell, are villains. So please, let's not have any villain monologuing. Focus on the other person. Think about their needs. Come up with a solution. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it shows that you are trying. It shows you have their best interests at heart. And ultimately, that's that's enough of the reassurance people need.
0: Okay. So final question then. In a crowded, competitive, price-sensitive market, a lot of people still fixate on their features and functionality. <laughs> and I'm a huge fan of not necessarily towing the line. and I don't mind if I upset people who frankly need upsetting, but a lot of people are reluctant to go down that more combative route. How does one do that uh, without coming across like an (laughs) ass?
1: Oh, in terms, so just to clarify the question, in terms of. Am I challenging people who are still convinced that the features of their product are going to be enough reason for someone to buy it? Or... No,
0: no. It's, it's, how do you stand out in a crowded, competitive, noisy market, mm-hmm. uh, but do so in a slightly more confrontational and combative way? Oh,
1: how interesting. Uh, know thy audience. Know your audience. I think the, the best thing to do is to, is to test out your communication styles. I would hire an excellent copywriter, and I'm not biased in saying that. I would make sure that if you are going to communicate that way, you have to make sure you don't veer into the realm of noxious aggression. It's okay to be combative as long as you have the other person's best interests at heart. You know, think of it should be like parenting. Parents aren't there to be your friends; they're there to help you grow up into being the best person that you can be. So I'm not saying you should parent your prospects, but there's something along the lines of that, Mark. As well, I think that, you know, we we're too. Being nice will kill us all sometimes, and if you are nice to someone's detriment, you are a manipulator. Mm-hmm. And again, coming right back to that ruinous empathy quadrant, you know, that, sorry, uh, radical candor, ruinous empathy is, I care about you, but I'm not going to challenge you directly. That will be the, that that will be one of the best and quickest ways for you to nice yourself out of business. If you are nice to someone, but you aren't challenging them, sorry, if you're, if you're, you're not going to challenge them directly, but you also care about them, then you are a really scary nasty manipulating type person and it it doesn't matter if that's masquerading as oh no but I just I really care about you no you care about your own comfort levels you care about not being put out it's it's deeply codependent ultimately it's like I'm I'm okay as long as you're okay so I'm going to make sure that you're okay even if that's not going to be in your best interest in the long run
0: whether you like it or not
1: whether you like it or not like I'm not going to rock the boat I'm not going to tell you that actually you know you are heading for hell in a handbasket because you're doing x y and z really badly but what I am going to say, again, come back with that solution, say, like, look, this is not just me telling you to be mean to you. I think you could try this, this and this, which I've done in my with, with my you know comms issues, for example, and it's worked for me. So it's it's not just about like jabbing the finger and saying, like, you've got a problem. It's a you've got a problem. And here's how we can solve it. It's the crux of everything.
0: OK, Eloise, thank you so much. This has been really instructive. How can people get hold of you?
1: You can find me at olimcoms.com. That's O-L-I-M-C-O-M-M-S.com. You can find me on LinkedIn if you search for Eloise Leeson. I think my title still involves the term biscuit snaffler. So if that's what you can see, you're on the right one. I do that mainly because it makes people laugh. And my email details can be found through my website as well.
0: Excellent. Eloise Leeson, thank you. Thank you. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and instructive, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. If you have comments, then please um, post on LinkedIn or uh, respond on whichever platform. And if you feel the urge, do please give us a genuine review. Don't care whether it's one star or five stars. In fact, it's got too many five stars. They need to get it down to about 4.2, apparently, according to Todd Caponi. And if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at last In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.